Hey, it's Captain Roger from the Grass Valley Corps of the Salvation Army, and we are here for our weekly worship and study time. Thank you so much for joining us online. If you would like to join us in person every Sunday morning, 11 a.m. at our Alta Street location here in Grass Valley, California, uh, we have a little gathering where we go over this material, and uh, if you would like to interrupt and ask questions or discuss things, we are there for that. Now, for today, grace and peace to each and every one of you. You know, uh, there was a time when for more than four centuries, the people of Israel's family had lived in Egypt. They had first moved there when a great famine had swept the land for seven years, driving uncounted thousands into starvation. And one of Israel's sons, a man named Joseph, had found himself in Egypt. And by the grace of God and his willingness to trust in that grace, he had become the prime minister in charge of making sure that Egyptians had plenty. And the end result was that Joseph's family, including his father, had moved into an area of fertile lands in Egypt. And they spent about 50 years there in relative peace, growing their families and their herds. But then, as their people grew in number to fill those lands, the Egyptian leaders became jealous. And they started to push back against Israel's people. Finally, they enslaved them completely and for 400 years only increased their oppression as the tribes of Israel continued to increase their numbers. Then, the leaders of Egypt began to kill Israel's babies, and they stepped up the work that they assigned to the slaves, and the people cried out to the universe in pain at the unfair burden of it all. And the God of their fathers heard their cry. And that God delivered one of those murdered infants. He saved it from certain death and he arranged for it to be raised in a position of privilege, but with knowledge of and empathy for its ethnic heritage. And God made sure that the child grew into a man of conviction and character and then called him to go and lead his people to the same kind of freedom. This man was Moses. And the miracles that God did to punctuate his insistence that the Pharaoh free Israel's descendants from their slavery brought them to that night of the first Passover. On that dark night, death stalked the land, claiming lives in every household that had not followed God's instructions to paint the blood of a lamb over their doorframe as a sign that they were listening to the God of Moses and not to the gods of Egypt. And then Moses led them out of the land that they had known, away from those gods that they had worshipped, out from under the oppression that had crushed them so brutally for so long. It was hard and terrifying, this journey into an unknown land following the agent of an unknown god. And he led them to Sinai, which would be called the Mount of God, because that was where they would hear from this deity who had set them free. That one day happened where they stood at the base of the mountain, and storms and smoke ringed the peak, and then the voice. The voice came rolling like thunder out over them so that everyone could hear, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, from the house of slaves. And he gave them the Ten Words, what we now refer to as the Ten Commandments, an outline of life, the way that this God who created the world intended for life to be lived. 
When they heard him, the people were frightened, and very quickly they sent representatives to Moses saying, Could you just intervene? Could you speak to God for us so that we don't have to hear that voice directly? And the Lord took pity on them, and he had Moses bring his team and 70 elders to represent the people. He brought them up the mountain. They got the words of the law, and they brought them back to the people with an offer. If you will live by these rules for life, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, in those days, they called this kind of a contract a covenant. And since they hadn't invented notaries yet, they would seal it with a ceremony based on an old ritual passed down through the generations. An animal would be slaughtered and cut in half, and the pieces would be laid side by side so that the blood would run down in between them. And the two parties would then walk together through this symbol of death, in between the pieces, through the blood, to say that if either of them should fail to keep their promise, then they should be destroyed just like the animal whose blood they passed through. The blood that was on both of them represented how they promised to walk through life together. Scripture says that Moses came and he told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the regulations, and all the people answered with one voice, and they said, All the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Now, there's some debate about who all the people here are. Is scripture referring to everyone? I mean, that probably would have been somewhere between one and two million people altogether, all of the, the descendants of Israel who'd escaped. Now, I, I think not. I, the 70 elders were there to represent the people. What they said and did was to extend to everyone. I mean, I suppose it could have been everyone, but it just seems so impractical to me. And the story is told in a way that sounds like things happened a lot faster than they could have if we were to go poll every individual. Still, it's obvious that God could enable it to happen that way if he chose. But to my thinking... When we hear all the people, we are talking about this council of elders, the representatives of all the people. Now, since they all agreed to be bound in this way, an altar was built to stand as a symbol of meeting with the presence of God. And Moses had animals sacrificed to formalize the covenant. Exodus chapter 24 verse 8 says that Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, look, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. And as that blood covered the elders, or all the people, it became the promise that they and their children would live by this covenant. The Lord would be their God, and they would be his people. Sadly, Israel didn't really hold up their end of the contract for long, but God kept his promises just as if his people had been faithful to him in all things. Time passed, people fell away and returned to the covenant a hundred times in a hundred different ways. Along the way, God suggested that a new and better covenant might be needed, and he gave the people clues to recognize when that time would come. But um, you're waiting for me to get back to the story of Jesus, aren't you? That's what we've been working on. That's what we've been working on all year. The story of uh, Jesus as told by Matthew in uh, his book by that name, Matthew. It's the very first book of the New Testament. So you grab your Bibles and find that. <clears throat> now we left off last week after Jesus had been tried by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. 
They were the elders of the people, the representatives of the nation, which were elected to match that initial group, which the Lord had called into existence through Moses. These 70 men who were thought to be wise judges who could lead them to follow the covenant so that they would remain the people of God. Which they did, kind of. But this council had become divided into factions, which spent more time seeking and maintaining political advantage than they did on anything else. Jesus was a threat to that advantage. And even though some on the council sided with him, more than half of them had voted in favor of Jesus' conviction and execution in spite of the lack of evidence that he had committed any kind of crime or sin. But condemned as he was, Jesus was taken to the Roman governor to have his sentence confirmed. Now that governor's name was Pilate, and he had his own struggles with the uh, Sanhedrin, and he wasn't a man inclined to just go along with whatever they said. But he also wasn't a man who was terribly concerned about the lives of the people that he governed. What mattered to him was keeping his own leadership happy by maintaining order in the province that he ruled. After all, as long as the emperor was happy, Pilate could enjoy a comfortably privileged life. And we'll pick up our story in Matthew chapter 27 at verse 11. It's Matthew 27, 11. And um, if you're curious, I'm reading today from the more literal translation of the Lexham English Bible. So if you're using a different translation, just be aware the words may be a little bit different, but the meaning behind them should be the same. Matthew 27, starting at verse 11. So Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You say so. All right, now, I'm going to try not to stop after every verse. But I do want to point out something about the answer that Jesus just gave. It's an acknowledgement that what Pilate just said is the truth, given in a way that sounds like he's just accepting what it is that Pilate said. I know this sounds kind of confusing. I think that this will help clear it up. Um, in the last passage, the high priest questioned Jesus, asking if he was the Messiah, and Jesus answered in a way like he was the second witness, confirming that what the first witness just said was correct. This thing with Pilate is the same thing. Um, in fact, this is the third time that we've seen Jesus give this same answer tonight. The very first time was at a dinner with his disciples, when he said that one of them would betray him just as the scriptures prophesied the Messiah would be betrayed. And Judas said, oh, surely you don't mean me. And Jesus replied, you have said it. Then when the high priest asked him if he was the Messiah and the Son of God, he said, you have said it. And now on trial before Pilate asked if he is the king of the Jews, he said, you have said it. See, Matthew wants us to take note that three enemies of Jesus have each called him the Messiah, and Jesus has accepted that from each of them as if it was a declaration of his identity. In a trial, what would happen here in front of a, a Roman judge, the, the judge would briefly recognize each of the parties, and then accusations would be made and any defense would happen. Now, the whole Sanhedrin would have been here in this case because they had voted on uh, Jesus' condemnation earlier. And uh, they would have been right here filling this courtyard where Pilate sat for judgment each morning, and several of them would have spoken in prosecution before the governor gave Jesus a chance to respond. All right, that should put you kind of in the headspace of where we're at here. Look at verse 12. It says, when Jesus was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, 
Do you not hear how many things they're testifying against you? And he did not reply to him, not even with reference to one statement, so that the governor was very astonished. See, defendants didn't just have the opportunity to speak. It was expected of them. But Jesus didn't. And this kind of threw the governor for a loop. In fact, so much so that he urged Jesus to make some kind of a response. But still, Jesus said nothing. Now, I think Jesus was fully conscious, uh, fully conscious of the fact that the prophet Isaiah had said of the Messiah that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Again, it's from the book of Isaiah. He, he didn't respond to his accusers at the religious trial, and now he's not responding to the accusers at this trial. Jesus is trusting whatever happens entirely to God's hands. And Pilate, he's, like I said, he's thrown by this, but he seems to recognize that Jesus is no threat to the Roman Empire. He doesn't see any reason to convict Jesus, so he tries to engineer a release. Verse 15. Now at each feast, uh, that's referring to the Passover feast that is about to begin here. At each feast, the governor was accustomed to release one prisoner to the crowd, the one whom they wanted. So this was just like a gesture of goodwill. At some point during Passover each year, the Romans in Judea would release one person who was being held, someone that the people asked for, usually some kind of political prisoner, probably. Uh, now at each feast, the governor was accustomed to release one prisoner to the crowd, the one whom they wanted. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner named Jesus Barabbas. So after they had assembled, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who is called Christ? So, Jesus, son of the Father, that's what Barabbas means, son of the Father. You want me to release Jesus, son of the Father, known criminal, or Jesus who is called the King? And, and now take note of why Pilate wanted to release Jesus who was called the Christ. That, that's in the next verses, look at verse 18. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a message to him saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much as a result of a dream today because of him. So what we've got here is Pilate recognizing that the high priest and the Sanhedrin leaders weren't motivated by justice. And also, his wife had a weird dream. I, I love that. I really do. Well, I'd love to convict this man, but my wife had a dream that he's innocent of all charges, so he is free to go. How weird is that, right? Now, this is the sort of thing that Matthew just includes, like, as a random detail. Like, he's done all throughout his book. He just throws in these little random details that make me really wish that we knew more. But he doesn't seem to think it's such a huge deal, so he doesn't waste a lot of ink on it. Now, i got to tell you, dreams were considered greatly significant to the people of the time. So Pilate's wife, having had a dream that Jesus is innocent, actually would have carried some weight as testimony, which is why Matthew mentions it. But Matthew doesn't say if this is a divinely inspired dream or give us any details at all. He may not know more than just that this note got passed in. So it's really hard to say anything else about this dream for sure. So I guess I won't. You gotta love, though, that God leaves us these little mysteries in his word, right? 
Anyway, so Pilate's like, hey, I got two Jesuses here. One of them we all know is guilty, and one of them doesn't seem to have done anything wrong whatsoever. Then verse 20 says, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds that they should ask for Barabbas and put Jesus to death. So the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, well, then what should I do with Jesus, the one who's called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What wrong has he done? But they began to shout even louder, saying, let him be crucified. I see Pilate, he doesn't want to convict him. He's recognized Jesus is innocent of these charges, and he doesn't like the Sanhedrin. And like I said, he's not inclined to do what they say. And he knows that the crowd here is mostly the Sanhedrin and their people. Because they came and they crowded out the other bystanders when they pushed their way to the head of the line this morning. Any outcry here was being driven by the same people who had hauled Jesus in here in the first place. So Pilate points out, look, Jesus hasn't actually committed any kind of capital crime that he should be executed. But that's no go because the chief priests have a chant going in the crowd. Crucify! Crucify! Now, do you remember what I said was the most important thing to Pilate? Maintaining order. Because that kept the emperor happy. Happy emperor, happy governor, right? Yeah. Rome was the first real global city. It could not sustain itself without importing food and goods. And most of the trade routes came from areas like Egypt and Northern Africa. And they ran right through Judea which meant any uprising in Jerusalem could actually disrupt the stream of required food and stuff that the empire needed to continue to hum along. So order was Pilate's first concern, always. The life of one man? Yeah, not so much. Not so important. Verse 24 says, So Pilate, when he saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but instead an uproar was developing, he took water, and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this man. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. His blood be on us. Pilate is going to sacrifice Jesus, and the blood will be on all the people. All the people, it says. And if the 70 elders were all here, then it really is all the people. They represent all the people. Just like it was when Moses brought the covenant of the law to the people and the sacrifice was made and its blood was on them and their children as a symbol of that covenant. What was it Jesus had said just a few hours before when he was at dinner with his followers? Look back a chapter. Look at uh, verse 27, a chapter before. It says, after taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from this all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, there's a new covenant being established, one that's notarized by the blood of Jesus as the sacrifice instead of by the blood of lambs or bulls, one that covers over the sins of humankind with the innocent blood of the Son of God. Now, some people say that this passage that we just read, it suggests all Jewish people have rejected and killed Jesus. Now, those people are reading this wrong. It says no such thing. And frankly, anti-Semitism, which has come up a lot in the news in the last few weeks, anti-Semitism is completely incompatible with Christian faith. Or for that matter, any logic whatsoever. 
anti-Semitism ignores the very real fact that Jesus and all of his first followers were not only Jewish, but they were very orthodoxly so. Orthodoxly. I thought I had made that word up, but my dictionary liked it. Guys like Peter and Paul, even after the resurrection, even though they mainly ministered to Gentiles, they kept very rigorously religious Jewish lives. And when any sort of that crazy thinking comes up, we would do well to remember that we are taught that in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no Greek or barbarian, but instead we are all just beloved children of God and we are expected to treat one another as such at all times. Which is not how Pilate is about to treat Jesus. Verse 26. Then Pilate released Barabbas for them, but after he had Jesus flogged and handed him over so that he could be crucified. It's always disappointing to see justice ignored in favor of favor of in favor of whatever it is that this is. I was going to say in favor of expediency, but it's not even really that, is it? It's just politics. It's greed. It's lust for power. It's self-centeredness. It is a blatant disregard for human life and dignity on all sides. It's Jesus becoming this sacrifice, which is going to initiate a new covenant, not because God has required it, but because we forced it. God can work all things together for our good, even things meant for evil. Jesus' death was meant for evil, but God will use it. Let the blood be on you and your children. That's what they said. Let the blood be on us and our children. And you know what? Let the blood be on you and your children. Let the blood be on us and our children. Let the new covenant established by Jesus' teaching and his sacrifice be the deal that rules in our lives. We should stand up and say, The words that God has spoken, I will do. And he will be our God, and we will be his people. Amen? This is a terrible place to leave our story, but you know what? It's where we're going to break for this period, this week. You want to read ahead? Please feel free. It is uh, this week as we record this, the first week of Advent, the leaning into this uh, season of hope. And believe it or not, the message of Jesus's conviction and sentence to be executed it's a message of hope there's a new covenant and he will be our God and we will be his people if we choose to live in that covenant if we choose to live under the reign of God if we choose to be in his kingdom if we choose to accept the place that he has for each and every one of us in that kingdom are you with me? I hope so. If you got any questions, please feel free to post them in the, the comments or, or send me an email. I would love to talk this through. Yeah, given a chance, I will talk through anything. I, you may have noticed I tend to get a little wordy at times. But whatever, however, wherever you are, I want you to take this with you. Wherever you go, you have nothing to fear. Because God is already there. 
So just go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this week.